0: Here's your host, Sakar Cowley.
1: Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Lo Hornbuckle with Good Horn Capital. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Lo. I appreciate you taking time today.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: Incredible, thank you. And Alo is with Gudon Capital, uh, you know, they uh, do investments passively. It's a capital equity uh, firm. Uh, they are investing in assisted living, built to rent models. They, uh, you know, obviously have the assisted living, uh, uh, you know, division within them. Uh, Their assisted living a division called Sage Oaks Capital, which uh, I think is championed by Low here, and he has good bit of experience. He has five locations uh, himself uh, in Dallas uh, with forty beds there. Uh, their boutique company is a such a good dealer in uh, in that space that I kind of was inspired to invite him and see, and kind of share the content. Perhaps it would be a great conversation, and we'd love to kind of hear some nuggets from Lo here. Uh, so with that, Lo, uh, help us get started as to uh, kind of how you kind of came about in the space, and also. Uh, you know how you kind of took turn into partnering with your uh, partner and forming goodhorn capital as well you know
2: <clears throat> absolutely um how how much time do we have now um so the uh the deal with me is is that i I worked at a car dealership for a long time um mm-hmm. so mostly ran the finance and insurance department, so I was the guy that everyone hated but sure. I mostly wasn't that guy I mostly managed those people um, mm-hmm. and um It was a great experience because you know I learned I learned how to sell I learned how to you know run a service business because the truth is you know if you go buy a Honda somewhere uh, you know they're all the same right so you have to go where it makes the most sense so I really understood fundamentally kind of you know what a unique selling proposition meant Uh, learned a lot about risk you know who was credit worthy you know who should we give loans to and that was a really important uh, Mm -hmm. thing to do and then learned a lot about relationships right because you're you're talking to. Not so much from the customers. I think the customers are an important relationship, but if someone buys a lot of cars from you, they're going to buy one every couple of years. Mm -hmm. But every day I was talking to the banks who were loaning money. And so I was having to build relationships with them. Mm -hmm. That was pretty fundamental in my development, I I think. But, you know, just I, I always realized that. Um, you know, if you own a car dealership, uh, my particular owner, uh, was kind of hands off and he was in the business, but was hands off. And mm-hmm. he spent a lot of time on vacation and playing golf and having this great life. Mm-hmm. And there was a general manager. He's a good friend of mine. And that guy worked hard and he mm-hmm. worked really hard all the time. And you never, he was never. So I realized, you know, basically, even if I get promoted into the, into the dealership, I'm going to give myself a, a, a job. Sure. And I was like, you know, what's the point of making money if you can't enjoy it? Sure. sure. So I set out to kind of start my own company. And um, just unfortunately, my, my dad uh, passed away and had a really bad experience on hospice. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: And um, I don't want to say it's linear. I didn't start to say a joke because of my dad. Sure. But when I stumbled into the opportunity, all those old emotions and all those old feelings and all those things kind of came back into play for me. And it enabled me uh, the opportunity um, to sort of take what happened to me and turn it into a positive for other families. So sure, that's kind of sure. how Seijo got started. Um, and I'm happy to answer the question about my business partner, but you may want to follow up on this, but sure, you know, sure, I met sure. Austin, uh, you know, basically because he's an expert in construction mm-hmm. and, and that was something I felt like our company uh, really needed.
1: Sure. And th- there are a lot of like good bit of nuggets there, uh, you know, love uh, your point about, uh, you know, sort of that seed of inception, as we call it, right? I mean, was that the hospice experience and, and those experiences kind of, you know, kind of lay those, uh, uh, you know, uh, inception seeds, as I call it all the time, is that something tickles you and something you say that, hey, this is not right and this has to some get something better. And I'm sure your say jokes uh, memory care business now uh, was perhaps a result of uh, some of those uh, sort of inspirations or experiences that you took to heart and say that, hey, I'm going to like kind of replicate this and make it better as well. Another point I think you said, which I really like as well, uh, just kind of hearing you being in that, dealership space and being the finance insurance guy and you're seeing all the various people the systems the people around you that come through the credit worthiness that you said of the customers that's so critical that you're analyzing you're betting on people and you want to make sure that you know your customer is right like, for example, in our business, uh, you know, I'm kind of the property manager. We l- look through, uh, you know, similar model. People are trying to rent or lease or buy cars or, you know, your rental houses. You're looking at credit reports. You're kind of seeing, hey, is that the person worth taking the risk? Do you think they'll kind of pay the long term, whether it's car, whether it's, you know, sort of your rental houses, It's the same, same kind of uh, philosophy. There are a lot of parallels. Uh, would you agree to that, Loh? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, no, I think um, I think you know learning how to um, learning how to read between the lines and learning um, when someone says one thing, you know what they really mean, and so it, you know it was a good experience. And then um, you know just just kind of figuring out which customers you didn't mind vouching for, you know mm-hmm. putting your reputation on the line, which customers you didn't want to do that with, mm-hmm. um, and and there were some really great lessons. I mean, one of the interesting things about it, um, you know, the people that that paid more for the car they were Mm -hmm. almost always happier. You know, it's funny, you know, the people that come and spend all day negotiating and they're like, ah, I'm not that happy. Like, no kidding. You you spent all day here to save $300. Like, um, but the people that paid more oftentimes were happiest and they just came in, bought the car they wanted and went on about their days. So it was, it was, you got to see a lot of different styles of people Mm -hmm. and you got to see, um, some people think negotiations being mean, right? Like if mm-hmm. I'm going to negotiate with you, then we're, I'm going to be rude to you. I'm going to be cruel to you. And, and, sure, and they uh, want to so win. Was kind of so, well, right. even then, I mean, it, uh, there's plenty of people that want to win, but they're nice sure. about it. Right. Sure, it's just sure. because of numbers. It's just a piece of metal with some tires sure. and some numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it was funny to see all the different personalities, and you know, kind of put them in categories, and 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 just people, all how they handled themselves. And it was it was a great, great, great place for me to learn a lot. And I loved what I did. Um, ultimately, I'd probably still be doing it if I saw a, a reasonable path to mm-hmm. owning a dealership. It's not that easy, um, sure. and a lot of the a lot of the manufacturers. Um, you know, have a very clear picture about who they want to own dealerships and things like mm-hmm. that. And it probably mm-hmm. wasn't gonna be me, so once i kind of realized that was the case and it was like okay well maybe i want to go start my own thing you know and and uh, and give myself an opportunity to to build something in my image or build something that i think that serves uh customers in the way that i want it to
1: sure sure now let's let's fast forward that tape uh, low as to um, you know now you have five locations uh, with memory care your company say jokes right uh, could you maybe kind of uh, you know play it forward and kind of give us some stepping stone that when exactly was it, uh, you know, uh, was clear to you that, hey, I want to be in this memory care, uh, you know, uh, space, and I want to make this better. And five locations uh, for for our viewers and listeners, I want to kind of you know, underline and uh, bold the statement here is that owning memory care is extremely uh, stressful, capital intensive. Uh, There's people involved, there is timeliness, there's just so much regulation in all of this. So for someone kind of coming from, let's say, uh, you know, a a car dealership side, uh, and, you know, coming into this space, uh, help us kind of fill in those blanks uh, as to how all those different touch points happened in all of this.
2: that might be beyond the scope of our show, but uh, I'll definitely do the best I can. Um, So, uh, you know, I really kind of made the decision. What was kind of funny, I actually thought I was going to start an apartment syndication company. So Mm -hmm. probably, let's say, uh, June of 2015, uh, Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to start an apartment syndication company. I was at a conference being hosted by a big multifamily company that I'd just finished working for. So uh, one of the things that I'd done is I said, well, if I'm going to get into the apartment business, I need to learn how to be a, pro- a property manager. And sure. so I actually took a job. I invested with a company and then took a job uh, as a property manager, not the property that I invested in, but just to mm-hmm. learn the business. Sure, sure. And I did not like being a property manager at all. Mm-hmm. It was terrible. Sure. Uh, and so I, 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 I got their occupancy They were 88% when I got there, when I left they were at 93, they're in the process of selling. I didn't, I didn't stick around. I just said, Hey guys, I think you're in good hands. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, good luck in the sale. But I went to an event they were hosting and they were talking about, you know, senior housing being the future. <laughs> and I'd never thought about that before. And, and frankly, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't, I would, I would say that prior to 2015, um, You know, I had my grandparents and I had them and I really loved them and cared about them, but I wasn't the guy that would like stop and help an elderly lady across the street. I didn't think like that. Sure. Now my whole paradigm is different in how I I approach society. And a lot of people that have known me for a long time have commented that I'm I'm different since I started the company, right? So Mm -hmm. I've literally spotted a lady in my neighborhood that had dementia and was wandering and, and just the signs resonate with me and kind of like stop to help her but mm-hmm. I would have never done that prior to 2015 I would have had sure. no mm-hmm. you know no bearing or anything like that mm-hmm. so in 2015 I kind of that kind of got in my ear and then by November of 2015 we'd bought our first house that we were going to convert into an assisted living facility mm-hmm. you know we toured all a bunch of different facilities and decided okay here's what we want it to be and and, I, and to this day I think some people will tell you it's probably the nicest facility in Dallas mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that was my first one and then I bought an operating one that was struggling um, Mm -hmm. because my career has really always been about buying facilities that weren't doing well. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a disconnect in my opinion. Most people that are selling small assisted living facilities, if they're doing well, they want so much money that the financials don't really work. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can go in and buy one that's struggling. And with my background in sales and marketing and that kind of stuff, that, that, that part wasn't the big fear for me. Um, so I kept buying struggling properties. So the mm-hmm. average occupancy of the three facilities that I bought were 33% occupancy. So they're not mm-hmm. doing well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, stabilized those two locations. You know that those were corporate-owned stores. And then we went out and uh, raised capital for the first time. So mm-hmm. I'd have private investors before, but I'd never gone out and had multiple investors for projects. First time I did syndication uh, was in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we uh, raised a couple million dollars to expand our company from two locations to five. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, and then we stabilized all those and, and, and found some success and, and, uh, you know, paying investor distributions on the ones that are, um, that are uh, syndicated. Mm-hmm. And then we said, okay, we've proven the concept. We've proven we can do this. Now let's go build our, our, our dream. And our dream sure. was mm-hmm. a campus of care homes. Mm-hmm. So you pull up into a neighborhood instead of, You know, houses for families. These are nine thousand square foot mansions that have sixteen people living in them, and they're all on one campus. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. you have an administration building, and it's but it looks like a neighborhood. And so we wanted to build um, essentially a big building that Mm -hmm. was broken up into little buildings, so that you could have all the benefits that come with small facilities. Mm But all the scale and all the benefits and all the financing that come with, you know, 200 bed, 100 bed facilities. And so we have two of those projects going now. They're in various stages of construction. Mm -hmm. Those will both be coming online uh, next year. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll start filling those. And so those will kind of be our crown jewel. And uh, we're very excited to offer those to the markets that we're in.
1: Sure. So that would be a large uh, sort of a colonial luxury, uh, you know, uh, mansion style assisted living. uh, Does that sound about right?
2: Yeah. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're traditional houses, but they've been purpose built for that. So each house has 16 people. Mm -hmm. I mean, just in terms of dollar amount, I mean, one project is about 15 million and the other one's about $18 million. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're pretty big, pretty big projects.
1: Sure. And how, how big is uh, the sort of the square footage of these buildings? Uh,
2: Yeah. So each building is about 8,500 square feet. Mm -hmm. Um, I have 80 beds in in one and 96 beds in the other. So the two developments combined are just under just about a hundred thousand square feet, roughly. Okay. Um, I see. One's, and about how, 50, how, one's about 50. How yeah. many
1: buildings is that within one uh, phase, by the way?
2: So in uh, in our project in Louisiana, uh, mm-hmm. is six buildings, an admin building, and then five 16-bed care homes, so 80 mm-hmm. beds. Mm-hmm. And then our project in Denton, it's seven buildings, an admin building, and then six 16-bed houses for a total of 96 beds in that phase.
1: I see, I see. Very interesting, very interesting. So this is where I think you combine your... Memory care and the new construction with your partner. Would that would that be right?
2: Yeah, I mean, so uh, in Lake Charles, so my partner uh, Austin, we're is active in our our Denton community, and I think we started we started out kind of as a joint venture, and it's kind of become a partnership over time. And and, and that's really a testament both to both to him and his team, and 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 our ability to interact and get along. Um, You know, I've been in a lot of partnerships. I've had some partnerships that have lasted, you know, for 15 years. Um, mm-hmm. so I've been in partnerships that have been very good, but finding a, finding a partner that, um, that you trust completely, that you want to grow with, it kind of balances you out. It's, it's difficult to do. And I've been very fortunate to have a lot of those throughout my career. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, ultimately when I was building in Lake Charles, what I realized was, is not having construction and development in house mm-hmm. was a hindrance sure. and by that. I mean, look, I've got a great. Construction development partner in my Louisiana project, but he doesn't live in the market, mm-hmm. so he's not actually hands-on doing those things. Sure. And so the the great thing about my partnership with Austin is is that um, he was already actively building and developing in the market that we're in together. And so mm-hmm. you know, he knew who to talk to at the city. He, he had you know his team in place, and um, you know there's gonna be some growing pains for him. It's building a new asset class. Sure. Sure. But, you know, he's been very diligent in, in getting educated and making sure. And we work together daily on, you know, value engineering stuff. Uh, today, we just uh, just got a bill for generators that would uh, choke a horse. So we're working on that right now. So sure, sure. Uh, if you need generators, uh, they're expensive as can be. So it's sure, not, sure. not fun to look at that bill at all.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Now in all these projects, uh, Lo, let's talk about, uh, you know, sort of the uh, financing side of it or why it's so appealing, like how are the returns, Uh, I mean, Why not kind of take your company into the traditional multifamily or perhaps the self-storage route that many operators uh, typically operate under, right? Uh, Your niche, uh, you know, assisted living, as you said, right? Uh, Why not something else? Why assisted living? Give us some sort of uh, numbers or perhaps some genesis around uh, why that class Mm -hmm. is so appealing.
2: Yeah, so... um Look, I think the numbers in assisted living and memory care are compelling, um, but not so compelling that somebody would want to take on that mission. So I I think it really, it's beyond that for me in that having managed an apartment complex and having sold cars, Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, those things are commodities. Um, And I really didn't want to be involved selling commodities anymore. I wanted to be offering something that was unique and I want to be offering something that was a personal service. And so, Hmm. you know, um, people come to me all the time and it's like, hey, mom or dad has fallen 15 times in the last year. She's going to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And if you could just help me stop her from falling, right? So that's a very personal thing. And so- Oh, absolutely. I guess the the best way I would describe it is probably conscious capitalism. (laughs) Um, I consider myself a capitalist, but I also don't think that, you know, the Gordon Gecko greed is good school of capitalism is doing capitalism any favors. Sure, Um, sure, sure. So my philosophy has always been, there are plenty of ways to make money that I would never do. You know, sure. so like, it, you know, it's very profitable to arm child soldiers. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I want to be in the arming child soldiers business. Sure, um, sure. So what I like about what I do is that there's money in it, but more importantly, I'm being paid to help somebody. And and when the offerings in the marketplace are, are, are so, they're always missing something. And so it gives us a chance to really kind of rise to the occasion, solve a real problem. And, and unlike some of the things, um, I would argue multifamily, you know, that's a need. I don't know that storage is really a need. Nobody really needs stuff, right? But mm-hmm. if your mom has got dementia, you're going to need somebody to help you take care of her. And, sure, you know, sure. if, your dad, if your dad falls a lot, you're going to need assistance. And so, you know, we're really filling a need business. I, I, I think of us in the need business and not in the want business. I mean, sure, people choose us because they want to, but they also sure. they, they got to go somewhere to get the assistance they need.
1: Sure, sure, and I appreciate you sharing that, and I kind of applaud you as well, Lou. There, that your thesis about and your outlook about looking towards this is uh, pretty fundamental and pretty, uh, you know, sort of inspiring. I mean. Not only you are kind of taking that ethical outlook towards this, uh, but the experience you offer, and kind of uh, you know bootstrapping yourself to kind of develop your brand, kind of go into this new construction projects, and create that sort of brand identity of sorts, uh, and kind of go into this uh, highly competitive space, but at the same time, you know, kind of equip yourself to say that, hey, I want to be in that. Uh, sort of good uh luxurious experience where someone is coming to this grand mansion and be proud and so it kind of goes you know just as you mentioned it 's not just the uh you know just the crude capitalism that we see all the time it's sure. it 's more about your offering an experience you're aspiring uh such a need in general you know and now speaking of your projects uh lou uh Give us a sense of uh, you know what that investment thesis looks like. Uh, what is that ROI and things like that? Because you have investors, uh, as much as you would love to, uh, you know, obviously do good, uh, but at the same time you want to make sure you know the projects are fiscally responsible. You're giving sure. them returns, things like that. Help us understand some of those. Yeah, factors. on our
2: on our bigger on our bigger projects, I think um, you know the metric. So as developers, right? So obviously sure. there's there's you can have so many different metrics. You have cash on cash, return on investment, equity multiple, you know, internal rate of return. You have so many metrics you can look at, mm-hmm. and um, we like internal rate of return just because you know it measures time value of money. The For other sure. thing too is that um, a lot of our a lot of our projects are, are long holds, you know, maybe ten year holds, mm-hmm. and 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 some investors love that because you know, look, if you're if you're a syndicator and you're in and out every couple of years and I got to constantly, you got to have constant deal flow to solve tax problems for me, or you've got to, I've got to, you know, see if I like your new market strategy. If you put something in for 10 years and it performs well, it's kind of set it and leave it for a lot of investors. Sure. Like that. So typical internal rate of return for us, for investors, usually uh, at the end of the project is around 20%. You know, some projects might be 18, some projects might be 22, but around Mm -hmm. 20% uh, is is pretty standard for us. And that's pretty hard to do on a 10 year hold. Most of the time, you see those internal rates of return returns you know at 20 or above these are like two three kind of really quick turnarounds mm-hmm. and so with us not having cash flow for the first couple of years to be able to perform that you know that's we definitely try to put the investors first and create a um, you know create an environment where you know they they can they can do well but also get really good returns so like a typical equity multiple for us might be you know, might be around three. You know, someone invests a hundred thousand dollars throughout the whole project; they get three hundred thousand, something, something like that. That's that's probably pretty common for us.
1: Sure, sure, sure. Thank you, thank you for sharing that, low And um, how does that uh, sort of the structure look like? Is it uh, you know between uh, the share of partnership? I mean, between let's say the uh, LP and the GP shares. Uh, is that uh, is there any preferred return involved? Uh, how does that work?
2: We're pretty, we're pretty project specific. Um, mm-hmm. So we haven't done a lot of preferred returns in the past. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we've looked at it. Some of our build to rent stuff, we've done that. It really depends. Um, you know, when I first started raising capital, um, I realized that um, that there were so many different tools and ways to, you know, and interact with your investors, right? And sometimes Mm -hmm. you can do debt, you can do convertible notes, you can do equity, you can do preferred returns, preferred distributions, all kinds of waterfalls. And, And what I realized was is that different projects called for different tools. Sure. Um, and so, you know, we really kind of step back and we always kind of look at different ideas. And so we, we really haven't had a consistent strategy one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I imagine in the next couple of years that will probably go away. We'll kind of find what we think works the best for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've, we've tinkered with a few different things on different projects because, you know, look, if, you, if all you do is carry around a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail, right? <laughs> so having the ability to, you know, tinker and look at different ideas. So we've done... We've done some convertible notes. We've done some straight equity shares. We've done some preferred uh, distributions. We've done some waterfall stuff, and you know, um, ultimately, the, all the projects got funded, so the investors felt good enough about the structure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I generally prefer simple, um, but sometimes with development, you don't really have that option because um, you know it's like if I'm buying a ninety percent occupied building, then I I can do simple. But if I'm mm-hmm. building something, then you know, you almost always have to do it a little bit more complicated to try to engineer a way to ensure the investors get a healthy return for the risk that they take. And at the same time, you leave enough meat on the bone for us uh, doing all the work that, uh, you know, we can, you know, do what we need to do and, and, and take care of uh, ourselves as well.
1: Sure, sure, sure. And also speaking of development projects, uh, Lou. typically we know the land entitlement, you know, kind of going through all that process. Uh, You know, of course, building is, uh, you know, no small task as well. So how do you kind of piecemeal all of this uh, sort of risk that comes around, Uh, you know, especially the entitlement risk and things like that. So when you kind of go into these projects, how are you kind of safeguarding yourself and not kind of just, uh you know go uh, belly up uh, mid- midway and things like that Would you talk about sure. some uh, some of all those aspects as well
2: yeah i think uh you know our team has done a good job i think we have a very elegant solution to that so you know there's really when you're there's two risks um there's uh you know there's basically uh, like there's risk from the city so you have your entitlement risk mm-hmm. um you have like civil risk and that that's basically That your project's amazing, but the city doesn't let you build it. or They make you change something. They make you spend so much money the project doesn't work. And then there's there's market, meaning that can you execute the business plan and can you fill it and stabilize and do all those things? Mm -hmm. So we've actually kind of created a product where it allows us to uh, separate those two. Mm -hmm. So actually what we'll do is we'll do a phase one offering and our phase one offering will involve investors coming in at generally a fixed rate of return. Mm -hmm. And basically what we do is we hypothesize, Hey, if we buy this piece of land and get it all the way to shovel ready status, it's Mm -hmm. entitled, they've approved everything, you know, everything's good to go. It's ready to go. And we sell that from phase one to phase two, we've added Mm -hmm. value along the way. And so what we do is we have investors that join us on the entitlement risk Mm -hmm. And they're basically betting on us to successfully get the land entitled and then sell it to uh, ourselves, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then they get first right of refusal to stay in the new deal if they want to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have products. And so because what's nice, too, is if you have a friend or you have a family member that calls you up and says, hey, you know, I'd like to place money with you for a couple of years, but I'm doing 10-year holds. I can't help them. Mm -hmm. But if I'm doing a land deal where I plan to – you know, get an entitlement ready and work with the architectural and the civil engineering teams and all the vendors and make sure that we got, you know, the water getting off the site and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. then uh, then we can create that product. And so we've kind of developed two products. We have basically a phase one product that's a Mm -hmm. fixed rate of return. It's, uh, for lack of a better term, it kind of looks a little bit like, um, you know, mid-range hard money, right? So an sure. investor might get 10%, 12%, sometimes mm-hmm. 15% uh, return over annualized. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing too is, is that our other offerings are pretty popular. And so they actually get first right refusal. So mm-hmm. for example, on our Denton project, we raised $1.5 million for phase one. Um, we had almost $2 million of phase one money come into phase two. <laughs> so we lost a few investors, but the ones that we kept actually upped their investment. Sure. And so all together, we had about a 30% increase from phase one to phase two, and they were happy because they basically ensured they had a spot. And so, sure. it and that's a good sign.
1: Uh, uh, sorry to interject, but that's a good yeah. sign, Lou, right there that phase one investors are saying that, hey, we believe in it, we want to increase our, your yeah. share. And kind of having all phase one investors and more kind of going into phase two sure. that speaks to the sort of the belief of the, your investors for sure. Uh, but well, beyond but, that,
2: too, the, the other thing that's kind of cool about the way we engineer that. So phase two, really most of the entitlement risk is off the table. You know, there might be a little bit, but most of 99%, 90% of it's gone.
1: Sure. But
2: Mm -hmm. what's fascinating is, is that, um, you know, if a project takes say five years to stabilize, Mm -hmm. when you break it up in two years and three years, you're kind of starting the clock again right so if you look at internal rate of return it you know if we would have started at the beginning mm-hmm. then you know it, it depresses things but if we pay those investors off and we start a new project right phase mm-hmm. 2 of the same project then it allows us to you know not only pay out some investors early let them get off the bus if they want to sure. mm-hmm. but when someone stays in it kind of resets the clock
0: mm-hmm. and
2: so it does allow us to have multiple different offering types it does allow us to um, you know, cater to different people with different needs, but mm-hmm. it also allows us from a financial engineering standpoint. And there's, a, it just allows us to, you know, start the clock at a different time. And that sure, look sure. A, an entitled, ready to, ready to build project is very different than a raw piece of land. And you he's going to go along with it. So absolutely, absolutely. And,
1: and did you say Loh, in between that phase two also involves maybe a couple of phases uh, in phase two itself? Uh, so that uh, yeah, maybe I mean, you it, protect. It could.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So generally when we we'll generally buy a little bit more land than we need so we can build more uh, sure. more phases mm-hmm. of buildings mm-hmm. yeah i mean you could break it down in multiple steps and multiple phases but fundamentally phase 2 is uh for us construction of the building you know getting the chicken of occupancy stabilizing and filling the building refinancing all the way to disposition mm-hmm. phase 1 is basically getting it ready for shovel ready status. And so it's a sure. very different different mm-hmm. process. And right, look, there's right. some risk in phase one uh, and, and that's why we pay a good rate of return. But ultimately, you know, since we're the inline customer, the only risk is can we not sell it to ourselves if we not, <laughs> you know, create value. And so that's sure, kind sure. of the way we, we do things. Yeah.
1: Sure, sure. And, and phase two, part one would be perhaps uh, you kind of continue the build out and you bring it to completion and perhaps phase two V uh, in that would be Kind of the lease up and stabilization. Yeah. Does that sound about yeah. right?
2: Yeah, and then we do a refinance takeout, and then um, and then obviously eventually we you know we hold until we uh, dispose of uh, dispose of the asset.
1: Sure, sure. And, and what's that long term hold look like? You know, you said ten years for sure, but yeah. uh, is that the phase where you're saying okay, I'm stabilizing the whole you know occupancies kind of you know setting up all the operations and things like that and the eventual disposition uh, that you referred Lou is that more kind of than based on let's say my grandiose NOI and can I find a bigger REIT or some bigger operator uh, who can kind of consolidate uh, you know sort of your luxury uh, project into their fold would that, would that be that the exact plan but perhaps
2: yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is, is that it could be a lot of things. Um, so we've thought about this a lot, and you know, who knows what's going to be happening ten years from now. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, because these are individual houses on one campus, mm-hmm. theoretically, if you wanted to buy one house, I you could sell could. you one house, and sure. you're under common management. Mm-hmm. Um, I could just sell the project. The other thing that may happen. Our model's so different is that maybe one of the really big players in the space, especially now with COVID, right? Because COVID's mm-hmm. kind of influencing senior housing in sure. a lot of ways you know, what if a big player, you know, comes in and is like, look, I love what you're doing. I don't understand it. I'm just going to buy you. Right. So Mm -hmm. they may, they may try to do an MMA Mm -hmm. um, or someone can come in and say, you know what, you've got 10 of these communities in Texas and three in Louisiana. We'd like to buy the whole portfolio. Sure. And then, you know, so we sell it like that because once you get to a thousand beds or 1200 beds, you're institutional. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You're creating a lot of efficiency. So we're keeping very tight geographic areas. And so, you know, we may not look outside the state of Texas to do an acquisition or certainly not a development maybe ever because Mm -hmm. there's just no reason there's enough there's enough things happening in Texas that if I I could probably spend 10 years doing it in Dallas and 10 years in Houston and you know 10 years in Austin and San Antonio so it, it makes it nice because you have a very tight you know, area that you have to operate in. You know, if you got a, if your executive director, you know, goes on maternity leave, you can plug somebody else in from a sister community. In, in, in makes perfect time. sense. Makes perfect sense. Now, uh, let's shift gear a little bit. Your model about built to uh,
1: rent, you know, uh, perhaps your partner, uh, you know, kind of champions that, uh, uh, you know, torch, so to speak. What's the thesis there? Like, uh, is that uh, houses, apartments, multifamily? Yeah. What, what does that look like?
2: Yeah, so um, we focus on townhouses and duplexes at present. Um, We like like townhouses depending upon the density and the things required from the city. Um, So Mm -hmm. our latest project is actually a combination of townhouses and duplexes. Mm -hmm. Um, We love them because um, there's a lot of people that don't want to live in an apartment. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of people that are looking for three and four bedroom type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now our our primary market, we kind of have a blend of families and a blend of students. Mm -hmm. We have some professionals too, some nursing people, things like that, but we're in a town that has a bunch of colleges. And so, you know, we'll we'll get two or three students with their parents co-signing as roommates, and we'll also have, you know, a family of four. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe have a little dog and they want a little yard. And so we're able to offer product that is very, it's a kind of a class A product at a class B price. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. attractive in the marketplace. Um, and you don't have a neighbor upstairs, you know, jumping on the floors like sometimes you have with apartments. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. our real, uh, one of our keys to our, our, our project is, and de-risking it, is we individually plat each uh, unit. And so Interesting. um if mm-hmm. we build 90 if we, so we have a 90 we have an 89 unit complex that we're building right now mm-hmm. we're building it in phases of 30 basically mm-hmm. um and everyone's individually platted so here's the thing we can run it like a multifamily we can have mm-hmm. a you know we can run it like an 89 units all feeding into common management it's all mm-hmm. run like that you know you know all that um, we could also, again, sell off chunks of it. So, sure. you know, one investor's like, Hey, I'd like to buy this, these eight duplexes, you know, sure, sure. get the price and keep it under common management. But here's the thing. If 10 years from now, if, uh, we've all seen a trend where uh, renting has gone up and homeownership has gone down. Sure. What if that reverses in 10 years? Well, then we can make a couple of improvements and now we can sell them to homeowners. Sure. So we have a lot of exit strategies that are very attractive and the other thing that allows us to do is, an, is a multifamily right now. Um, there's something called the amenities arms race. And what it is, is is every building you go to, it's like an arms race. Who can have a better amenity? Like, you know, not only do we have dog washing stations, we have dog yoga. And it just gets uh-huh. out of control. Sure. And for building operators, it's, it's a distraction. It's expensive. If you bet on something that's wrong, then you have problems. We don't have to do any of that. So we don't have pools and we don't have gyms and we don't have all those things but at least like hotcakes. And the reason is because people, some people just want a single family home and they just want to, you know, have a little yard. And so our unique selling proposition is a, is a, is a single family home um, with a yard uh, or, you know, sometimes a front yard, some side yard, sometimes a backyard um, with a garage mm-hmm. and, you know, some people really want that. And so we can, it kind of attracts a different type of buyer. And so we love it because we're not in the, we're not having to do like everybody else is developing apartments, which is you got pools and gyms and, you know, a wine tasting deck and it just gets out of hand. So we can avoid all that and bring a product um, to, uh, to bear that has a very competitive price. So we're building, you know, uh, let's say 1500 square foot duplexes and we're renting them for 1800 a month. And it's very attractive and, you know, it's an eight, a- class product in a b class kind of price range
1: sure sure and and makes complete sense and i think and uh, the back pitch of all of this i think low that i like is that there's synergy there like you know the construction your background uh it's not like y- you know you're completely going off in all different directions sure. uh you know perfectly ties into, you know, like how you are developing within the uh, assisted uh, living phase as well, you know, so that that makes complete, uh, you know, sort of synergical uh, uh, sense there for sure. So uh, with that in mind, uh, Lou, I know you have invested uh, in a lot of passive deals, uh, you speak uh, passionately about Uh, how to kind of, you know, vet uh, the deals, the sponsors and things like that. Uh, Could you maybe perhaps talk about uh, some of your philosophy around, uh, you know, like how you vet syndication deals uh, in general?
2: Yeah. uh, You know, if I was going to boil it down to one thing, because I I know that, you know, obviously we talked and, uh, you know, I I put out this list of things to look for. And, you know, I think the most important thing is that it's really all about who runs the deal Mm -hmm. and not the deal itself. Um, Mm -hmm. And you know, ultimately, um, you know, one thing I love about our company, and I, there's some other companies that do this, you know, as well if not better than us, is that we're we're involved in operations. Um, so many people, and this is not a knock on them. Mm-hmm. So many people, um, you know, they they build things, they buy things, and then they hire someone else, and I mean like a third party company to, to to do everything with that. And man, it is great for growth. It is great for. Uh, expansion it is great so you can jump on Facebook and go oh man I bought a 200 unit apartment complex Mm -hmm. but um, as we run into challenges like COVID and the economy and all those things man operations get really difficult and we just so we really so I like to invest in people that fundamentally understand operations I like to invest in people that push come to shove the sponsor can jump in his car and, and and go talk to a client. The sponsor can hire a leasing agent if they have to because sure. at the end of the day, um, there's a measure of fear that happens. If you created all this money and all this wealth and you don't really know how you created it, then if you lose it, you don't know how to get it back. Sure. You got to get somebody else to do that for you. And so I really like people that are in operations. I really like companies that understand operations, that keep operations in house. I like I like companies that, um, that communicate well. Uh, I like companies that um, I like I like the sponsor's vision or the economy's going. Because the truth is, is that as we've seen in this current time, there are people that are winning, uh, that are doing better. And there are properties that are doing better than they were before all this. And so it's really about just doing things that when times are tough can be defensive and when times are great can can go on a good run. And so that's the reason why we've chosen some of the asset classes we have. A lot of my passive investments, honestly, are in affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, RV RV parks, um, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, some some multifamily that's kind of a Class B, kind of Class C area. Because ultimately, um, you know, we really like that kind of middle of the road. You know, not necessarily workforce housing, but maybe 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 like professional housing, but you know, kind of inexpensive professional housing. Sure. We love that business because um, ultimately. You know, if your apartment, you know, you, you need to be close to your job, you need to be close to your kids' schools, things like that. If, if it's an RV park and you're a temporary worker, you know, you're staying there to, you know, finish the electricity on a project or whatever mm. it may be. So we really, we really love affordable, you know, in my assisted living memory care business, we're not really affordable um, because we're not leasing to people with jobs, right? We're leasing to people that have built up net worth and built sure. up, you know, they have long-term care insurance you know, so on and so forth. But in the housing space, we like affordable. We like things that, you know, if you're a very fancy person living in a, a high, you know, class A building and times get tough, you consider moving into a nice class B building, right? Sure, sure. And if you're, a, you're, if you're a tenant that's, you know, working in a, in a workforce housing type environment and you get promoted at your job, then you're going to probably upgrade to a B B class. So that, and that's one of the reasons in is um, just the uh, the idea. So a lot of our passive investments share that philosophy. We love that sort of B class, um, sort of um, sort of on the line between you know middle class. We love that that space because we think that's where a lot of opportunity is, both to step up and step down uh, in good times and bad.
1: Uh, And I like that thesis actually, uh, Lou, and and it it kind of pretty much jives with some of my personal philosophies as well is that, uh, I mean, you know, being an owner operator for, I mean, I guess two decades now, I kind of seen, you know, a lot of things come and go, of course, and that belief in execution and operations that you know, you kind of know the being in the trenches, you know how things work, what to look for when you scale, what things could be challenging, all of that uh, can be exactly extrapolated, and you're also the Uh, Things that you mentioned about how someone can downgrade or upgrade or even just the general resilience in the workforce housing in general uh, is such a a fundamental uh, thing that that's not going to go anywhere. The volatility is so low within that space that if you're in there. Um, I don't believe that any of uh, sort of the pandemic of sorts uh, can sway you, you know. Uh, So I I always, you know, have that belief and, uh, you know, it's not going to go anywhere for sure. So uh, thank you, Lou. I appreciate your time uh, today. Thank you. Um, How about share some contact information as to how folks can reach you and learn more about your company as well?
2: Yeah, sure. So a couple options. Um, If they want to shoot an email to me, uh, my email address is low, L-O-E at goodhorncapital.com. So goodhorncapital.com. And um, they can shoot me an email. If they want to learn more about the assisted living business, we have a, a book on the website. They can just go to goodhorncapital.com and you can uh, download a free uh, ebook um, that basically tells the story of my company, SayJoke, and kind of how we got started and kind of our philosophies on things. So if they want to learn more about that, they're welcome to do that. That book is, uh, is totally free. So Goodhorn Capital is probably the best place to go and uh, real easy to get a hold of us there
1: awesome thank you for coming on for viewers and listeners uh, our uh, website is premiumcashflow.com We have, you know, great guests like Love all the time, uh, sharing lots of insights into different spaces and would love to, uh, you know, have you, if you're interested uh, in learning more or knowing, you know, how passive investments work, uh, kindly head on and register yourself. We can have a short conversation and figure out, you know, what interests you and how we can help each other. So it's been a pleasure, Love. Thank you for coming on today.
2: Yeah, hey, thank you for having me on the show, man. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.